Thank you, John, for that. Um, let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you what today represents. We thank you for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. God, as we continue to celebrate that, that resurrection, God, be with us and guide us as we enter the scripture this morning. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, now, a lot of you know that, that I have two children. I have a six-year-old boy, Judah, uh, and if we're really quiet right now, we can probably hear him breaking something around the building. Um, he's kind of like a bull in a china shop, uh, but he's, he's my boy. I love him. But there's something you should know about Judah is that he is, uh, I think the, the medical term is a scaredy cat. He is, um, he's very measured when it comes to all areas of life. Uh, if we're going somewhere, he wants to know who's going to be there. Are my friends going to be there? Very teenage-esque like, you know what I mean? Where he's got to know who's there first. Uh, when it comes to going to a new restaurant or trying a new food, he, he's got to know what, what's it taste like. Uh, is it going to be crunchy? I mean, he's a, a fried chicken boy after my own heart. Um, but he, he's got to know all these things. He's very measured. He, he thinks about things like that. Now, my other kid, Isla, is not like that. Uh, she is a pistol. I, I don't know if Isla is afraid of much. Uh, there's not a, a ledge she wouldn't jump off, a food she wouldn't try. She just goes 100% into life. And as a, a girl dad, that terrifies me. Recently, she told me that I was ruining her life because I asked her not to play in the street. I mean, these are like, and that hurt. I was like, oh no, you're three, and that, that digs deep. But uh, I, was, I was like, maybe as a teenager I could handle that, but right now that one hurts. But that's who she is. Like, she's fearless when it comes to life. And there's something that is captivating about that. I think that's why Jesus talks a lot about having faith like a child, is because there's this, like, this, this carefree, fearless attitude of going 100% into life. And if we're honest with ourselves as adults, like, we, we love that, but we don't do that a lot, Right? A lot of us are, are more like Judah, where we're measured and reserved, and we want to know all the details before we commit to something. But really, I, I think that we're called to be more like those kids that just, hey, I'm going to take a leap of faith, and I'm going to trust that God's going to catch me. Now, this morning, I, I want to start off with a story that's not really about the resurrection that I, I found very interesting in connection to what I'm talking about this morning, and it's in Luke chapter 14. Now, Luke 14 sets up this beautiful scenario where Jesus is doing miraculous things. Before the story that we're going to look at this morning, uh, Jesus has fed 5,000 people. The reality is Jesus probably fed around 15, 20,000 people that day with five loaves of bread and two fish. And, and the disciples were along for the ride. They, they witnessed this. They saw Jesus do these miraculous things. And there's this point where you get a little bit of the humanity that we see in the life of Jesus in this first text. Let's go to it, Miles. Uh, in Matthew 14, 22, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Now, I have a theory here that Matthew doesn't lean into, but I, my theory is that Jesus was tired of talking to people. Uh, I, I can't confirm that, but I think if we look into the humanity of Jesus, he was probably exhausted. He had been handing out bread and fish all day long, healing people, talking to people, and he needed a break. 
And we've seen in the relationship of Jesus with the disciples, he probably needed a break from them too. And that's why he's like, how about you guys get on that boat for a little bit and leave me here to just kind of be alone and pray? So later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, you've probably heard this story a hundred times. As kids, we, we would read this story and we would think about what would it be like to be on that boat? Let's go to the next one. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Now, this fear element is why I brought up the story about Isla. Um, it's because she's fearless. She jumps, she goes, she runs, she does whatever she wants to. And that's because I, I don't have any um, real control over her at this point in her life. But but that idea of fear is something that we see in Scripture a lot, right? Now, they're, they're afraid, I think, because they think this, this is a, a ghost. This is something they've never seen before, something they've never experienced. But there's also the fear of being in that, that boat, too. There's a storm that's come over the sea, and they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know how are they going to get from point A to point B. Fear has kind of overcome the disciples, and they find themselves in this boat, But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, I was talking to somebody this morning that there are a lot of passages in Scripture that you can look at so many different ways, and this is one. You could do the sermon about fear, or you could do the sermon about the courage of Peter. You could do so many different ways to unpack this particular story. But in 28, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Now think about that for just a moment. If you were in the boat, would you have been willing to take that step? I have never walked on water in my entire life. Um, And and people have told me that constantly in life, that I do not walk on water. And so um, when when I see this story, I think we forget to add the humanity of Peter in the story as well. Because Peter is is doing something that he's never done before. It's captivating the the fearlessness of Peter in this moment because he's just seen Jesus feed thousands and thousands of people. He's seen Jesus heal people over and over again. It's like Jesus, Peter has experienced Jesus to this point to where he believes that whatever Jesus says can come true. He trusts in him. He knows because he's encountered Jesus. And the only thing that Peter needs in this moment is to know that Jesus is going to be there. I don't know in my heart if I believe that Peter thought that he could walk on water. And in the message, the way Eugene Peterson translates this is that Peter jumped out of the boat, which is completely different than just a measured step out. It's kind of more like Isla getting out of that boat than Judah. But a lot of times we look at this story and we think it's like Peter's like slowly stepping out on the water and that's, that's not really how it's translated. It's this, he's just going for it. The, the obstacles of fear are gone. The, the safety net of staying in the boat is gone because he knows that taking that step, that leap out of the boat means he's going to be putting his life in a situation that could be dangerous. It could be costly. He could get into this water. And so the passage continues... Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. 
This is, where I, this is where I would be. I think that first step, I can do it, right? That, that belief of like, okay, here I go. But the second that like the doubts come out, like our insecurities start coming to the forefront of life, like, do, do I really have what it takes to do this? Am I really confident enough in myself to follow you, Jesus? Am I really sure enough that if I take this leap of faith that it's going to work out the way that I want it to? But even in his moment of desperation, Peter knows that Jesus is there. And going back to the story of Isla, when she jumps off something in our house, 100% thinks she's going to be caught by somebody. And sometimes we're not in the same room as her, which is, that's where it gets kind of dangerous and risky. But Peter knows that. Like, Peter knows that Jesus will rescue him in this moment if he's willing to remove those doubts and those fears and take that leap of faith. It says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, when I said a minute ago that sometimes these stories can be told in different ways and fashions, I've heard that story a lot. That, that Peter's moment is ruined because he doubts Jesus. And I don't think that's how Jesus is saying this to Peter. I don't think that you of little faith is disrespectful. I don't think it's meant to condemn Peter. I think if it's anything, it's, it's encouraging Peter. Like, hey man, I know you doubted yourself, Peter. Come on, like you can do this. I'm right here, Peter. Why are you doubting yourself? It's not a like you of little faith. That's not the tone of Jesus here. It's, it's encouraging and uplifting and picking Peter up in this moment where he knows that he needs somebody. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I wanted us to just for a moment look at this story in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 14 because it embodies this mentality of the obstacles that are in front of us. Peter had so many excuses not to get out of the boat. Think of all the things that Peter could have said. First one, I like the boat. I don't want to leave the boat. I'm not wet right now. If I leave the boat, I could get wet. I don't want to get wet. Like, that is maybe what Peter's thinking. Like, there's so much comfort in that. Jesus, I'm familiar with this boat. I'm, I'm in charge of it. I don't know. Like, there's so many elements of this that Peter could have said, these are the obstacles that I'm placing in front of myself, Jesus, so that I don't have to take this risk. I don't have to take this leap of faith with you, Jesus, because I know that I'm safe right here. I like the comfort of the safety net of the boat. And often in life, we hide behind those excuses. We allow our doubts and our fears, our concerns, the things that we are worried about, that we think that we're not good enough, we hide behind those, and we stay in the boat where we know it's safe. But Jesus doesn't call us to stay in the boat. Jesus is extending his hand, encouraging us to take the leap of faith, to leave your comfort level and follow Jesus. Growth always brings discomfort. Think of it when you were younger and you were growing and your body was expanding. Like, your legs hurt when you're getting taller. Growth comes with discomfort. Now, there's a story that I read about recently. We can go to that next picture, Miles. Uh, this is a, an island in Thailand. And, and I, I, it's a, a fishing island. There's, none of these houses are, are on ground. Um, they're all basically on water, houseboats and stuff like that. And it's this fishing village, um, <clears throat> Poa Kani is what it's pronounced. And 
Uh, it's this fascinating story that in the 1980s, it's a group of boys who became obsessed with the World Cup. Now, there, there's about 200, 300 people that live in this little island area of Thailand. Um, but they became obsessed, again, with the World Cup. But as you're looking at this picture, you're likely assuming what the, the, the obstacles that were in front of these boys is there was nowhere to play soccer. Let's go to the next picture, Miles. Now, this is a modern-day picture of, of this island, and you can see that they have now built a floating soccer pitch. But in the next picture, here's a picture of the boys in 1986. Uh, let's go to the next one. Yes, those boys built this. In 1986, they became so obsessed with soccer, they wanted to play in these regional tournaments in Thailand, but they had nowhere to practice, nowhere to train. And so what they decided to do was they were going to remove the excuses. They were going to say, you know what, there's nothing that's going to be blocking us from our desire to play soccer, to play football, excuse me, but to play, play soccer. They, they were like, there's nothing that's going to stop us from achieving these goals. We're going to take this risk. Even though the ground, there's no ground, it's floating on the water. They did it. Let's go to the next picture. There's a couple of cool ones here. You can see not a ton of room for air on this uh, soccer island here. One bad, uh, one bad kick and that ball is gone. And you can see these boys playing here, the beautiful background of it. Let's go to the, the last one, Miles, that one, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I found this story to be so fascinating because these are just boys. Like they were about 13, 16 years old. And, and the program itself is now one of the, the more prominent youth soccer programs in all of Thailand. Now think about that for just a second, about like, what you would generally expect there to be with a soccer pitch. Like ground, right? Uh, not losing the ball to water every time a kick goes the wrong way. But these boys, what they decided to do was to remove the obstacles. They weren't going to let their doubts, their insecurities, people telling them, hey, there's no way you can build this thing. And that, one of the first pictures that we showed was what they built today. They've modernized it, obviously. But there was something captivating in that story about these boys saying, you know what, I'm not going to be afraid of the unknown. I'm not going to be worried that we can't do this. I know that you're saying there's no way that we can build a soccer island, but we're going to, and then we're going to do amazing things. And the first tournament that they ever played in, they came in second place. And these are boys that grew up on this fishing village, never having access to a soccer pitch like this, and they overcame their obstacles. They didn't let anything get in their way. They're willing to say, you know what, we're going to get out of this boat and we're going to do this thing. We're going to build our own soccer island and then we're going to become a prominent soccer club. Now, moving into Easter. In verse 20, uh, first, excuse me, Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. 
The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him now that I have told you. Uh, I've become kind of obsessed with Christian symbolism recently. And in this idea of the cross, as Christians, like, if you think, like, what is a symbol? If I were to poll the room and said, what is a symbol that represents Christianity? Most of us would probably say the cross, like myself included. But the purpose of the cross is to lead us to the empty tomb. Our focus this weekend, and I think moving forward, should be the empty tomb. I think the tomb represents an invitation to live a new life, a life not shackled by death, but a life that lives within the resurrection, that is exhilarating, that is freeing, that is encouraging, that is uplifting. And in this moment when they go and they see that the stone has been rolled away, what I want us to think about this morning are what are the barriers in your life right now that are blocking you from living the resurrection. So often in life we come up with excuses and we say, Jesus, I can't do that right now. I cannot commit to that right now, Jesus. You're rolling that stone in front of living the resurrection. Or Jesus, I just don't have within me what it takes to be the disciple that I know that I'm called to be. You're rolling that stone right in front of you, using that stone as an excuse to say, I'm not going to do it, Jesus. When John brought up the idea of the crown of thorns, I kept thinking about the suffering that Jesus endured for us. Friends, Jesus did not wear the crown of thorns so that we would hide in the tomb. Jesus did not wear the crown of thorns so that we would stay in the comfort of our boats. Jesus was not pierced for our transgressions so that we would stay in the tomb in the darkness and say, you know what, I feel safe here. I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to live in the resurrection right now. Jesus did not endure all that suffering so that we would just stay in the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. We must now be individuals that live in the resurrection. And the beauty part of the the resurrection is that it looks different for each of us. It's all based on your gifts and your callings of where God is leading you, what area of life God is challenging you in. But you have to go for it. You have to be willing to trust that when you take that leap of faith that Jesus will be there. That when you exit the tomb and leave your old way behind you, that Jesus will be there with you. One of the things that we see over and over and over again in the life of Jesus is when the disciples fail, when they mess up, Jesus is there to pick them up. Jesus is willing to say, you know what, I'm going to stand beside you even in your doubts, in your insecurities. Friends, the stone has been rolled away. Our excuses are over. We must now be individuals that live in the resurrection Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And maybe that language is is what you feel at times. Like, I'm excited to follow you, Jesus, but I'm nervous. I'm nervous that that having conversations with friends or family or colleagues about my faith and what I believe, Jesus, I'm afraid. I'm excited because I'm trusting in you, but I'm excited. Or maybe that, that ministry area that you're excited about, but you just don't know how to tell somebody about it. Like Jesus is there with you. The stone has been rolled away. 
Your permission has been granted to do the things that God has created you to do. Verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This morning, Easter Sunday, our invitation is this. We must be people living in the resurrection. We must not be afraid of where Jesus will take us, but we must trust in Jesus that he will lead us and provide a way, provide instruction, provide hope and guidance. Friends, so often we hide within the safety of the tomb. We stay within the comfort of the boat, and we're not willing to take that first step. But the reality is the first step has been taken for us. The stone has been rolled away. Now we can truly be people that live in the resurrection.